Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to C. diff spores and more. I'm your host, Nancy Kerala, here to welcome you to the ninth annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo, November fourth and fifth, two thousand twenty-one. Enjoy the episodes. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is developing a new class of antibiotics for infections caused by bacteria listed as priority pathogens by the WHO, CDC, and FDA. These include C. diff and a variety of gram-positive infections and their candidates. To view investor information, see case studies, news, and online media, visit acurexpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is the audio sponsor of the 9th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. Visit acurxpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals. Let's move to our chair for today, Dr. Stuart Johnson. Dr. Johnson, we're going to hear from our um, today's conference with a welcome first from today's chair, Dr. Stuart Johnson at Heinz VA Hospital, Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago. So it is a delight to welcome you, Stu. Welcome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rick, and, and welcome to all the people who are attending. We just, I just want to say thank you again to Nancy for putting together another superb conference. I want to thank the sponsors for their support. And uh, Paul, uh, first at for a lovely job of chairing yesterday's meeting. For those of you who might not know, I am Paul's crotchety, sarcastic uncle. And Paul, I looked for my tie, but I haven't seen it since the start of the pandemic. So this is what you get. Um, I, I do want to uh, uh, just give you an update or an uh, outline of, of today's talks. We've got talks on infection control, diagnosis of CDI, uh, new therapeutic agents again, and one old agent. And there will be a group discussion about the new C. difficile guidelines from the IDSA SHEA and the ACG. Uh, remind speakers to beware of the time limit and uh, also beware of Maxwell's silver hammer that could come down upon your head. So <laughs> stay, you can take the full time allotted to you. If there's time afterwards, I may ask a question, but you have the full time. And uh, thank you again for your participation. And what I want to do is just introduce Curtis Donsky, our first speaker from uh, the Lewis, Lewis Stokes VA in Cleveland. The title of his talk is Empowering Patients to Prevent C. difficile Infection. Uh, thank you very much. I have no disclosures that are pertinent to, uh, to the talk today. So imagine you are admitted to the hospital. Uh, there are many uh, potential ways you could be exposed to healthcare-associated pathogens, uh, including C. difficile, the hands of personnel, uh, uh, contaminated surfaces, the picture on the right uh, side there shows a fluorescent glow on a toilet seat that we know has not been, uh, been adequately wiped because the fluorescent marker is still there, uh, portable equipment that goes from room to room, uh, sinks and endoscopes can be a source of, of uh, infection with resistant gram-negative organisms, and then of course with the pandemic we now appreciate that air is, is really uh, an important potential source for curing pathogens. So the common feature of all of these sources of transmission is that we really depend on healthcare personnel to protect us. Uh, 
personnel have to wash their hands, they have to follow protocols for cleaning, uh, engineers have to assure that ventilation in the hospital is good. So in the next 20 minutes, uh, my goal is to discuss some potential measures that patients uh, can take to reduce risk of acquiring an infection. And the ultimate goal of this work would really be to come up with a bundle of measures that patients can use to protect themselves and reduce the risk. So I will focus on C. difficile, but it should be appreciated that C. diff shares many risk factors with other pathogens, and it often coexists in the, in the GI tract with other healthcare-associated pathogens. Um, the the, um, the figure shows data for a single patient. We collected stool samples during the course of this patient's 10-week ho hospital stay, and each of those time points shows the concentration of pathogens. So this, this patient was colonized during his stay with VRE, vancomycin-resistant enterococci, MRSA, a highly drug-resistant E. coli, and candida albicans, all nicely sharing space in the GI tract of this patient. And then on, on week nine, he developed C. diff. And so at that point, when he developed diarrhea, it was not just shedding C. diff spores into the environment, but all of these other uh, pathogens as well were being, uh, being shed through fecal oral uh, spread into the environment. So ideally, we would like to identify interventions that not just impact C. diff, uh, but also some of these other pathogens that are spread in the same, in the same manner. So I will present three cases that illustrate uh, some potential interventions that patients could, uh, could take to reduce their risk. Uh, the first case is C. diff infection after unnecessary antibiotic treatment. So we had a 35-year-old patient transporter who received 14 days of clindamycin after a root canal. Uh, she was hospitalized then with C. diff infection and VRE colonization. And so it's easy to imagine where our, our patient transfer may have acquired C. diff because this is a, we, we can demonstrate this nicely. This is an image we captured by uh, having one of our fellows examine a patient with C. diff infection and then place her hands on this, on this large plate. And all of those yellow colonies are C. diff. You can easily, she could have easily picked up C. diff uh, after touching a patient. And it's important to appreciate that you don't even have to actually touch a patient. You can touch environmental surfaces and, and acquire uh, pathogens like C. diff. So this is a study we did where we found that 50% of the time when we examined a patient, um, you would acquire C. diff spores in your hands. And exactly the same, 50% of the time, if you just touched a patient, um, you would also um, acquire C. diff on your, on your hands. So, our patient transporter easily could have acquired C. diff after, after touching a wheelchair or other uh, mechanism of transport. And so the, although the patient transporter was at risk due to, for, for acquisition of C. diff spores, uh, the main reason she became infected was because she received antibiotics. And the main point of this case is to point out that antimicrobial stewardship could have prevented CDI in this, in this individual. Clindamycin is a strong promoter of C. diff infection. Uh, many patients, and she received clindamycin because she had a, a history of a penicillin allergy. It's now very clear that many patients who are prescribed clindamycin or penicillin allergy could have received penicillin if they had a mild reaction or that was a long time ago. Um, and then antibiotics are really overused in dental patients and can be associated with risks, including CDI. So the, um, you know, the, Indication for, there's really no indication for antibiotics routinely for root canal and certainly not for prolonged course of antibiotics after treatment. So in this case, this patient probably did not need antibiotics at all and really should have never acquired uh, C. diff infection.
And so, the, you know, the question is, you know, can patients, can we engage patients to play a role in reducing overuse of antibiotics? And, you know, patients who receive a fecal transplant for C. diff are really highly motivated to prevent failure of the transplant. And so one of the things that we do when we see patients who have recurrent C. diff and are getting a fecal transplant is we ask them to call us if someone prescribes an antibiotic for them so we can make sure that it's indicated. So for an initial 73 patients that we looked at, we looked at um, who received fecal transplant, 34% of them called us to consult about 43 different antibiotic prescriptions. 60% of those were deemed to be unnecessary, and 16% uh, were necessary, but we suggested an alternative that we thought was significantly less likely to promote C. diff. 95% of recommendations were followed, uh, although sometimes clinicians were irritated if the patient showed up in the ER and said, I will not give this antibiotic until I talk to my fecal transplant uh, transmission uh, uh, physician. So empowering, if we're putting together a bundle of measures that patients can use to prevent C. diff and other uh, infections, empowering them to talk about antibiotics, asking about the duration and necessity of antibiotics should be an essential component. So case number two is a new mother with recurrent C. difficile infection. So a 19-year-old healthy woman who was diagnosed with C. diff infection 10 days after delivery. She responded to treatment but subsequently had multiple recurrences. Where did she acquire C. diff? Um, she was obviously, for those of us who study C. diff, she could have acquired it anywhere, but she has one particular um, high-risk thing that she's doing that puts her at risk, and that's infants often carry C. diff without having symptoms. So the pediatrician sent a stool sample from the baby, even though they were the baby was asymptomatic with no diarrhea, and it was positive for C. diff. And when we did molecular typing, uh, we found that this was a recurrent C. diff in, uh, infection in our woman uh, whose baby was a carrier of the same strain, and this is a simple molecular typing method we used uh, called PCR ribotyping. You see lane three is the baby, lane four, uh, lane, sorry, lane three is the mom, lane four is the baby, and those strains are identical, and this is the epidemic 027 strain. So our intervention in this case was to, you know, tell our, our mom to wash her hands uh, with soap and water after changing diapers and clean the diaper cleaning diaper area with, um, with bleach, and she subsequently had no uh, recurrences. So if we're putting together a bundle, again, washing your hands with soap and water and, uh, you know, cleaning surfaces with bleach is a, should be an essential component. So how are we doing at educating patients about that? So this is a study we did in collaboration with the University of Michigan, um, and when we asked patients, although everyone's seems to think that we're educating patients. When you actually ask them, we ask them after they were discharged from the hospital uh, if they had received education, only 43% of patients said that someone had talked to them about how to clean their home. 62% uh, uh, had, had been given some education on how to clean their hands. And only 13% had been told that if no, someone prescribes an antibiotic, it puts you at risk for recurrence and, may, and you should potentially you know, ask, yes, your primary care provider uh, if that really is indicated. So there's a lot of room for improvement in education. Uh, just to point out why we emphasize hand washing, you know, hand washing removes spores, alcohol hand sanitizer does not. This is a study we did several years ago, and what you can see there is that about 50% of the time, the red bars show that we're, we're recovering C. diff spores in the hands 
of patients with C. diff infection. If you do an alcohol hand rub, uh, if these patients use alcohol hand rub, there's no reduction at all. It just kind of moves the spores around because alcohol does not kill spores. And as you can see, the hand wash uh, was actually quite effective, although not perfect in reducing contamination. So hand washing is essential. I also tell patients to shower uh, when they uh, every day when they have when they're coming to the end of a course of C diff treatment, and to do daily disinfection of surfaces uh, with a bleach type product. And the reason for that is shown here. This is uh, the shedding of C diff uh, during the course of treatment for uh, a, a patients in a study we did several years ago. And what you can see there is that the black bar shows uh, the percentage of positive stool cultures. And by the end of treatment, we've gone from 100% down to only 5 to 10% of patients have C. diff in their stool. But look at the red and green bars. Many patients still had C. diff on their skin and were shedding it into the environment. And so the obvious uh, you know, uh, thing that we can do to reduce that uh, might be to shower and you know, clean surfaces uh, to try to reduce the risk that you're going to touch a surface or touch your skin and then re-ingest some C. diff sealed spores. Um, and then just to point out why we, uh, we recommend uh, that we use a bleach product or other uh, agent that kills C. diff, um, when you, we, this is a simple illustration, we put C. diff down on one surface on a tabletop, and then when we wiped it with a bleach wipe on the bottom, you can see there's no C. diff spores uh, there at all. Bleach kills C. diff beautifully. And the quad is a common uh, disinfectant that's used everywhere um, and Lysol and other products like that. And so when we put C. diff down on one surface uh, on the tabletop and then we mo move to clean surfaces serially down the tabletop, what you see there is that we're just moving the C. diff spores around from one site uh, to another. And that's what you're doing if you're cleaning uh, with this type of product. And so why is that important? We tell people to clean with bleach. Obviously, they're, they're cleaning with bleach, and that's not true. There's a lot of confusion about products. So everybody thinks that, I, I covered up the, the name of this company, but everybody thinks that, that, that products from this company mean bleach. Um, but when you look in the small print at the bottom, um, this actually says bleach-free. So it's, you can't just tell people clean with bleach, and they'll automatically uh, always know exactly what you mean. Uh, and then, you know, we t I tell patients to, to change their clothing every day as part of a our bundle, um, and that's because we find that patients' clothing, if you have MRSA or C. diff, is often contaminated. Your skin is contaminated and your clothing uh, when you're having a lot of diarrhea. And so to change your clothing or wash your clothing every day. Uh, this, this is a nice illustration of that. We just uh, published a study where we looked at MRSA colonized patients. We had them do a fist bump with one fist and do an elbow bump with their other arm. And you can nicely transfer MRSA uh, by elbow bumping with, uh, with another person. So we recommend non-contact uh, greetings. So final, um, final case that I will present is here. And this is more of a question. Would you eat a mint uh, from the floor of a clean C. diff room in your facility? And your choices are yes, I'm confident that our cleaning and disinfection procedures eliminate C. diff spores from floors. Uh, B, you know, yes, if three-second rule compliance, if you can pick it up very quickly before the spores have, a time, have time to latch on, that might be okay. Or C, absolutely not. And the answer every physician or anybody who works in healthcare will tell you is absolutely not uh, because we clean 
floors with it. We, we typically wipe floors with a detergent. We're scrubbing bed rails and bedside tables with bleach products that are eliminating spores, but the floor is just kind of wiped around with a detergent that's just going to move spores around. And every survey that's ever been done uh, shows that floors are heavily contaminated with many healthcare-associated pathogens. And so, and, and you know, why is it important? We're not, we're not licking the floor or touching the floor. Well, that's not true, of course. So if lots of things that are high touch and are on floors just walk around the hospital. There's a call button on the floor. Um, we find lots of things, canes and all kinds of things that people touch are, are in contact with the floor. Um, patients wear these hospital socks that are supposed to be non-slip. Non and if you just have them step on this plate, you can get a nice sock print showing hundreds of MRSA on the on their socks, and then they're going to get those on their hands when they um, when they change their socks or just touch the bottom of their feet. So floors are are heavily contaminated, and everybody knows this, but nobody does anything about this because it's futile. The uh, you know you can't go around cleaning the floors everywhere. You can't clean them if you use a, a strong product that kills C. diff spores. You're going to take the finish off the floor. There's really nothing you can do about it, so people don't really talk about it. Um, and, and just one other uh, example here. So we can illustrate that floors, um, that organisms actually move from floors to high-touch surfaces. So in this study, we put, you see the, the, the square in the bottom of the uh, of the on the floor there. We put a, a blind virus on the floor there. And then over a period of two to three days, we saw that the virus migrated from the floor uh, as, the, as our patient walked back and forth to the bathroom through that area, uh, it ended up on all kinds of high-touch surfaces in the room, including books and call buttons and so on. And then in another recent study that we did, um, we, we found that hospital floors rapidly become contaminated and the organisms that are on the floor subsequently transfer to high-touch surfaces. So we cleaned uh, hospital rooms so they were essentially sterilized. We, we used UV and, and disinfectants and cleaned uh, every part of the room, including the floor. And then we did serial cultures of all kinds of, of surfaces inside the room. And what you can see in blue there is that the floor became contaminated almost immediately. As soon as doctors and nurses started walking into the room, the floor became contaminated. Here we're looking at MRSA, but the SID data was the same for C. diff. Um, and then as time went on, it ended up on the socks of the patient on the bedding in their, in their bed where their feet are, are, are positioned on high-touch surfaces uh, in the room. And so again, we, we have, again, more evidence that uh, floors are, are moving these organs around. And there's data for C. diff as well uh, from, from Slovenia and other areas showing that floors are often uh, contaminated with C. diff and shoes as well. So um, the question again, the problem again is we don't have any interventions that are, are useful to reduce this or feasible. So this is a, another study we we're just publishing now. Um, so because we can't clean all of the floors, what we did is we had patients wear slippers. Uh, we put our benign virus on the floor and we had, and patients either wore slippers or there were controls that did our usual practices in the hospital. And what you can appreciate here is that the socks and feet were significantly less likely to be contaminated with the virus if you wore slippers and high-touch surfaces. That was same was true for HGS's high-touch surfaces were less likely to be contaminated, uh, personal items as well. So this is a simple measure that one could potentially uh, include in our bundle to reduce the risk for uh, transmission of pathogens.
And so uh, our goal ultimately is to put together a patient empowerment bundle that patients could, could undertake to reduce acquisition and transmission of C. diff and other healthcare-associated pathogens. These are things that we would put in our, in our bundle of patient hand hygiene, patient bathing, change your clothing every day, wear clean clothes, wear slippers to keep, uh, keep your feet from becoming contaminated, ask your provider about the necessity of antibiotics and devices, Thank your, uh, your environmental cleaning person for cleaning, and, and thank your personnel for hand hygiene to encourage them to, to do the right thing. Uh, this is not a final version of this, so I would just mention that we're open to anybody who wants to put together a bundle could add something else. Uh, so I didn't include uh, uh, proton pump inhibitors, which suppress gastric acid. Gastric acid actually provides a nice host defense against a lot of pathogens, although not necessarily a great deal of effect against spores, uh, which are very hardy and resistant to this, uh, to this uh, uh, defense mechanism. But again, we're, this could be added or other things could be added as well. So in conclusion, um, this again is our, our sources of transmission of healthcare-associated pathogens. Our patient looks, uh, looks scared uh, and should be because there's lots of potential sources uh, of acquisition of pathogens. Um, the goal of, of, of this work, and, and, and I think a lot of other people uh, as well, is to not only protect patients by uh, having personnel do things for them, you know, cleaning and washing hands, but also trying to empower patients to take some control as well and try to do some things that they might uh, be able to do that might reduce their risk. So with that, uh, I will conclude. Thank you. Uh, Curtis, thank you for uh, for a great talk. Um, I'm very paranoid, but uh, it's well put. So we're going to move on. Um, thank you again. Uh, the next speaker is Mary Ruisi from uh, Vendata Biosciences. The title of her talk is a defined consortium, uh, a defined bacterial consortium, VE three O three. Thanks, Stu, and thank you to the CETA Foundation for the opportunity to speak. Um, I am a Vice President of Clinical Research at Vedata Biosciences. I also need to disclose this project has been funded in part um, with federal funds from the Department of Health and Human Services, the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, otherwise known as BARDA. So I'm going to take you through VE303, which is being studied for the prevention of C. diff recurrence. Just a brief intro about C. diff. It's disruption of the commensal colonic flora, typically through exposure to antimicrobials. And this allows C. diff to flourish and produce toxins that then lead to colitis. Although there's over 400 strains of Clostridioides difficile that have been identified, only strains producing the endotoxin A and toxin B are virulent. And risk factors are exposure to the antibiotics and exposure to the organism, as we just heard about. Um, most cases are thought to occur following iatrogenic or nosocomial exposure. Spores are also present in low levels in the environment and in our food supply, allowing for the community-acquired infections. And there are multiple risk factors and multiple meta-analyses about this. Um, just a few that we're going to mention are increased age, use of proton pump inhibitors, and chronic comorbidities such as renal insufficiency. CDI is 
an urgent threat, it's common, and it's quite expensive. So CDI was listed amongst five pathogens that are considered by the Centers for Disease Control as an urgent threat in its 2019 report on antibiotic resistance. Importantly, the severity of disease, associated complications, and rate of hospitalizations increase dramatically for patients who have experienced recurrence at least once. It is the most common healthcare-associated infection in the United States, based off of a manuscript in 2011. I know there's been evolving epidemiology. The estimated incidence is 453 cases, and they also estimated at that time about 29,000 deaths. The infection-related mortality is approximately 5%, and then it increases if you think of the all-cause mortality up to 15 to 20%. And then one report estimated overall that the CDI attributable cost in the United States may be as high as $6.3 billion per year. So there's a lot of treatments and there's limitations of the treatment. Um, a lot of this talk is focused on the oral antibiotics continuing to be the mainstay of therapy. However, you get collateral damage to the gut microbiome with that approach. And you can exacerbate the risk and emergence of multidrug-resistant organisms. Sodaximycin access and use has come into play, especially in the United States, but it is limited by high cost. Um, with each relapse, the risk of subsequent relapse goes up. That's illustrated in the figure on the left-hand column. And the severity of the disease, associated complications, and rate of hospitalizations go up dramatically for patients who have suffered a recurrence. There is a newer monoclonal antibody against toxin B called bezlatoximab. It must be delivered through an IV infusion. It's an adjunct, though. It is in, used in conjunction with antibiotics during the treatment. It has um, what some would call modest efficacy. There are a potential for safety concerns, especially in patients with congestive heart failure. It is, does have a high cost, and it doesn't address the dysbiosis, which is the primary underlying defect in C. difficile. And then there's been a lot of talk and recent articles and recent practice about fecal microbiota transplant. Unfortunately, the composition and quality of FMT has inherent inconsistency and variability. There is uncertain supply because it does rely upon adequate donors for this. There's a high cost with screening these donors and processing the feces to get it to the patients in need. There is the potential spread of adventitious pathogens, which we saw with the 20, late 2019 reports, and a massive scale-up is not feasible in the event of a large-scale need. So we are developing VE303 to hopefully address and overcome the limitations of the currently available treatment modalities. So what is VE303? It's a microbiome modulating intervention that is designed with the pharmaceutical rigor. In terms of being defined, all ingredients are known. There's eight strains of good commensal bacteria that are selected based on their ability to directly kill C. difficile, restore the secondary bile acids and short-chain fatty acid production, and also promote the recovery of the microbiome. Each is pure. Each strain is grown from cell banks and pure cell culture under good manufacturing practices conditions. There is no potential for possible donor-related contamination with undetected adventitious agents during the screening procedures. 
and it's consistent because it's derived from clonal strains. The composition is identical from batch to batch and from pill to pill. This is given as an oral formulation. It's pathogen-free. There's guaranteed absence of microbes that can transfer antibiotic resistance. In healthy volunteers, it showed good tolerability. Profile with only transient low-grade GI adverse events, and we'll go into that a little more in the discussion. It's stable, so VE303 is lyophilized, providing long-term stability and allowing at-home dosing for the patients, and it's durable. And healthy volunteers that were pre-treated with vancomycin, which was necessary for the engraftment of the strains, the VE303 strains were detected up to one year following repeated daily dosing, and this is suggestive of long-term engraftment. So this was, um, we have built a leading discovery and development engine for the, for the defined bacterial consortia. We start with data from people, so from original donors, that establishes the correlation between the state of the microbiome and the state of the disease. But then we interrogate the data to identify the mechanism or mechanisms of action of the microbiome in driving the potential clinical effect. Then we screen our proprietary library of microbiome strains using assays developed in-house to select strains with desired pharmacology. The strain library has over 100,000 isolates from greater than 265 healthy donors that come from four different continents, so a diversity of strains. Then we optimize the consortium using a combination of computational, in vitro, and in vivo models. And next, we manufacture with GMP, we manufacture GMP-grade capsules at our in-house manufacturing conditions. And then afterwards, and where we are right now, is testing these rationally defined consortiums in humans to establish the safety and the efficacy. There are six um, putative mechanisms of actions of VE303. The first one is conversion of the primary bile acids to the secondary bile acids, which in turn might suppress the C. difficile colonization. The second one is that it provides a niche and nutrient competition within the intestinal environment. This limits the outgrowth of the pathogenic microbes such as C. difficile. There's also prevention of inflammation from C. difficile toxins. There's butyrate production, which has been purported to be important for metabolism and integrity of intestinal epithelial cells. There's also non-butyrate short-chain fatty acid production, which has been associated with epithelial barrier functions that might play a role in reducing inflammation, and the induction of T regulatory cells, which play a critical role in maintaining intestinal homeostasis by controlling the inflammation. This is about our, um, a little bit about our collaboration with the Netherlands Donor Feces Bank with Ed Kuiper and his group. This showed the response to SMT in patients with recurrent C. difficile. They followed recurrent CDI subjects who were treated with a healthy donor SMT, collected samples pre and post. We identified the engraftment of this BE303 generic present and SMT strongly correlates with clinical response. And we showed that the engraftment of the VE303 and the phase 1A and 1B significantly de-risk our phase 2 study. And um, my colleague Jason Norman also has a pre-recorded presentation that goes into more detail about these efforts. 
This is our preclinical evidence from in vitro models and in vivo models. We showed that the screening library identifies candidates um, belonging to the clusters 4 and 14A that can directly kill C. difficile in vitro. The E303 strains occupy an ecological niche that overlaps with C. difficile. The one at the top right shows that VE303 improves survival and C. difficile infection in animal models to the same extent as fecal transplant. So I draw your attention to the green and the gray lines in that Kaplan-Meier plot. And at the bottom right, the VE303 strains produce key metabolites associated with gut health. And what is shown here is the acetate and the butyrate. This is our phase 1A, 1B study. Um, it was called VE30301. It established the tolerability profile and did support the phase 2 dose selection. We had multiple different cohorts. There was also a Banco-only cohort, so you could see what the background rate of safety was at increasing dose from low, mid to high, and increasing durations from 1 to 5 to 14 to 21. I'll show you on the next slide that there was no um, drug-related serious adverse events in any cohort. Um, and for the PK, which Jason goes into more detail, there was abundant colonization detected at all the doses, durable colonization for at least one year, repeated dosing increased the robustness of engraftment, and vancomycin pretreatment facilitates the colonization. For PD, we found that VE303 speeds up microbiota recovery in a dose-responsive manner, and there's clinically relevant change in PD markers of response. This is our overall safety summary. I just highlighted a few cohorts for you, so the Banco-only cohorts, so you can get a sense of the background rate, cohort 4, cohort 5, and cohort 6. Those patients were treated with the high dose at different durations starting at um, five days. The VE303 administered overall as a single or multiple doses with or without Banco pretreatment, it was well tolerated. And it had a safety profile that was generally similar to that with vancomycin alone. There were 33 total subjects treated with VE303 in this phase one study. There was no, no dose or schedule dependent increases in AEs that were observed. Of note, there was no SAEs related to VE303. So you'll see the column that's zeros all along, um, and the majority of treatment-emergent adverse events were gastrointestinal in nature. This is showing you the most common treatment-emergent adverse events. The threshold here was greater than or equal to 10% of subjects. The um, preferred terms that were listed were diarrhea, abdominal pain, soft feces, abdominal distension and nausea. And what I like about this graph is that it splits it out by those that happened during the vancomycin period and those that happened during the VE303 period. And it's similar, if not more common, happening during the vancomycin period for the TEAEs. The conclusions from our early phase development, early just being phase one from non-clinical, is that building on the FMT studies in patients with recurrent CDI, the E303 strains are shown to confer multiple beneficial functions in vivo CDI models. From the phase one study, we saw that the E303 is well tolerated at all the doses and durations tested with a good overall safety profile. 
And after a short pretreatment course of vancomycin, the VE303 strains rapidly and abundantly colonize healthy volunteers. VE303 also promotes the establishment of the microbiota community that is known to provide colonization resistance. So from this phase one, we moved on to our phase two clinical study. This is the target population were subjects with primary CDI at high risk for recurrence or subjects with recurrent CDI after successful treatment with antibiotics for C. difficile. They were randomized in a one-to-one-to-one fashion to either VE303, the 10 capsules a day for 14 days, the VE303, two capsules per day for 14 days, that's considered the low dose, or placebo. There were three interim analyses that were conducted when subjects were reaching the week eight, which was the primary objective time point. And the intent of each interim analysis was to inform potential design of subsequent pivotal studies. It was designed to be up to 80 subjects. The primary objective was to determine the recommended VE303 phase three dose regimen based on tolerability and effect on the CDI recurrence rate. The secondary objective was to characterize the VE303 colonization and changes in the fecal microbiota, otherwise known as PK in this realm. The enrollment criteria was different based off of the age. If you were greater than or equal to 18, you needed to have one or more recurrences of CDI in the past six months. So they had to be in the recurrent CDI population. If you were greater than or equal to 65, you could have you could be with or without prior CDI episodes, but you did need to have one or more of the following risk factors for recurrence. And what was mentioned was kidney dysfunction, proton pump inhibitor within the last two months with plans to continue throughout the study or history of CDI at any time. And if you were elderly as defined by greater than or equal to 75, you didn't need additional risk factors. You could be in the primary CDI population regardless of your risk factors. Um, patients were entered with positive C. difficile diagnostic stool test by either enzyme immunoassay for toxin AD or PCR or CCNA or toxigenic culture assay performed at local or the central laboratory. We recently, exactly a month ago, had a press release from Vedanta where we announced the positive top line phase two data for the E303 and high risk C. difficile infection. And also we were able to exercise a 23.8 million option with BARDA, which is the government in, which is the government, a part of the Department of Health and Human Services. So at eight weeks, the efficacy outcomes were assessed in 78 patients. There were 29 in the high-dose group, 27 in the low-dose group, and 22 from the placebo group. As a reminder, this project was funded partially by the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, known as BARDA. And based off of the phase two data, BARDA did exercise its first contract option to for additional funding of 23.8 million. On the right-hand side is a little bit about the um, results. So the high dose of VE303 met the primary endpoint of lower recurrence rate within eight weeks versus placebo. So that was 13.8% for the high dose versus 45.5%. This was using a pre-specified analysis that incorporated the results of toxin and PCR testing or a clinician's diagnosis and treatment of a CDI recurrence when no still sample is available for testing. 
This represents a 31.7 reduction in absolute risk of a recurrence and reflects a greater than 80% reduction in the odds of recurrence in the high dose group compared to the placebo, giving an odds ratio of 0.192 with a key value of 0.0077. And so more to come at a future medical congress about details of the phase two. We'd also like to thank all the sites and the patients um, who participated on this study, the investigators, um, the department, the federal government, and thank you to Shayna Westover for assistance in preparing these slides. Thank you. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. going to shift now and before I introduce Kathy Bischoff I just want to recall those of you who were listening yesterday we heard the perspective of a C. diff on a, on a caregiver and this Kathy would be the caregivee so Kathy uh, the title of your presentation I believe is more than a CDI revolving door and a ray of hope uh, take it away thank you very much and good afternoon, everyone. Yes, uh, yesterday my husband presented his side of what he had to go through when I had C. diff. And we don't talk about it much, so it was very moving. But it's an honor to be in attendance with all of you today and to share my personal C. diff story and journey at this ninth annual C. diff conference. And Nancy, thank you for all that you do. As professionals, health advocates, practitioners, and educators, you are all aware of the impact that C. diff now has in communities worldwide. It is no longer an infection of the elderly in nursing homes or the result of a hospital stay. It attacks infants, children, and young adults of all races and genders. C. diff has no boundaries. Your commitment, your dedication, and your focus on research in prevention and treatment of this horrific infection is so needed and so deeply appreciated. What you do truly does matter. As Stu said, I'm Kathy Bischoff, and I survived seven C. diff infection reoccurrences following my first diagnosis throughout the course of two and a half years. My journey started as a result of an ongoing struggle with diverticulitis. On one December morning, I suffered another attack, and this time I couldn't get out of bed. I was transported by ambulance to the hospital. It was my fourth attack in three months, and similar to previous occurrences, I was treated with antibiotics. And several times during this three-month period, I was prescribed double the normal antibiotic amount when my symptoms persisted. If I had only known then what I know now, 
While antibiotics are effective in treating bacterial infections, too much of a good thing can result in a C. diff infection. Upon my discharge from the hospital, I was told I had C. diff. My treating physician just casually mentioned it before I left, saying, oh, by the way, you have C. diff. That was the first time I had ever heard of it. And when I asked him for additional information, he said, it's an infection in your colon and I gave you a prescription for it. I didn't know how serious the infection was. I didn't know what to expect or what precautions to take. I certainly didn't think about preventing another infection or managing my symptoms. I would take the prescription and this C. diff thing would just go away. I had no idea that C. diff germs outside the body created spores, as spores can cause the infection, and that these spores can survive on surfaces for months or even years, and that they're now present in all of our communities. I was left in the dark. These are things that you are all aware of. I am now painfully aware. Today, I find the lack of information that was shared with me completely unacceptable. And that was the beginning of my C. diff journey. About a month later, I ended up back in the hospital for eight days after another diverticulitis attack. Options were discussed with my primary physician, and we decided on a surgical procedure to have the sigmoid portion of my colon removed. That seemed to be the area of my colon causing these attacks. The surgery went well, but I felt miserable. And during my post-surgical visit, my surgeon confirmed that I wasn't recovering as expected. I was readmitted to the hospital and diagnosed with C. diff, my second infection. Six reoccurrences followed, and each was more vicious and more debilitating than the one before. Three of them required hospitalization. During each infection, my life was turned upside down. I was forced to become housebound, and I was somewhat of an introvert. It was very frustrating, and it was an isolating experience. I didn't want friends and family to visit, fearing my uncontrollable bouts of diarrhea and just feeling so sick. I was fighting constant dehydration and had severe cramping. I was always tired, always nauseous. An instance of diarrhea could occur 10 or 12 times a day. When going to my doctor's appointments, my car seat was protected with plastic. I carried a complete change of clothing, soap and water, and a container if my nausea couldn't be controlled. My husband became my support system during this time, helping me accomplish even the simplest daily tasks. He prepared my meals. He had to encourage me to eat. He got up nights to give me prescribed medication at directed intervals. He took over all the household duties I couldn't perform and tried to keep my spirits up. It truly was not an easy task being my caregiver. I was just so sick and many times not very pleasant. Each time I started a new treatment, I was hopeful that it would finally conquer the infection. And unfortunately, without fail, C. diff would return about two weeks after each treatment plan ended. My system had become so weakened, I was unable to conquer the infection or to restore the needed beneficial good bacteria to my microbiome after treatments. I had no way to fight C. diff from reoccurring. 
after my last treatment, which was a taper that lasted for nine months, I started to experience symptoms that by this time were all too familiar. I tried desperately to convince myself that it was not a C. diff occurrence. The symptoms worsened and I got tested. I can't, it can't, it can't be C. diff again, I thought. You can imagine my disappointment when I found out that I tested positive for yet another C. diff infection. I was devastated. I was physically, psychologically, and emotionally exhausted. And questioning, could I even go through this again? Was this reduced quality of my life going to be my future? And I guess even more concerning is would I have a future? I knew I could no longer continue down the same path. The specialists treating me were at a loss of what to do next. They put me back on vancomycin and said they would do some additional research, but I may have to remain on vancomycin for the rest of my life. I told them that wasn't an option, and they assured me that they would do further research and that they would be in touch. I never heard from them again. There had to be another alternative, so I desperately looked for other venues. I was sick and I was frightened about my future, and I made the decision that I had to advocate for myself and my own survival. While searching for information online, I found the CEDIF Foundation's website. I called into one of their support sessions. And for the first time, I felt gratified and relieved. I was finally receiving so many of the answers I was looking for. I was treated with compassion and understanding by the CEDA Foundation staff. They were remarkable. I found people that understood. I learned about recommended nutrition, environmental safety, and so much more. And I found out that there were clinical trials for people dealing with C. diff infections. I was not aware, nor had anyone ever mentioned that, that these trials were actually available. The foundation told me that there were trials available and being conducted when we spoke. There was hope, something to research. I discovered a clinical trial site doing an open-label investigational treatment in St. Louis, and that was five hours from my home. I shared this information with my husband, who simply said, email them, now. I did, and I received a call from the research clinician within 15 minutes of pushing the send button. We had an in-depth conversation about the C. diff trial and about my ongoing battle. All my questions were answered, and further information was emailed and also mailed to me. After doing additional research and talking to my primary physician, who encouraged me, I applied as a candidate and was accepted, and I felt a great sense of relief. Taking this action helped me feel in control of my life again, and knowing that I had a new path was the key, and I actually felt empowered. My clinician was compassionate, knowledgeable, and helpful. I was impressed and comfortable with her and my team. On May 25th of 2016, I was administered the trial capsules. I called them my magic pet bugs. The trial lasted for six months with both office visits and phone calls and the capsules worked. We won the battle, and I gained a friend. It's a joy to have my life back. The infection is gone, but not without leaving scars behind. Anxiety and fear of another C. diff infection always remain. 
In 2017, I was diagnosed with severe arterial fibrillation. And after several cardiac conversions that proved unsuccessful, I underwent a cardiac ablation in late August of that year. I was assured by my doctors after in-depth conversations that the procedure wouldn't involve my having to take any antibiotics. Based on my past experience, I'm always in fear of needing them. Unfortunately, there were complications and two procedure-associated infections followed while I was hospitalized. They both needed to be treated with antibiotics. It was unnervingly and remarkably frightening. My greatest fear was now a reality. Would they cause another C. diff infection? What could I do? The answer is I advocated for myself. I became part of that treatment, and I was very selective in the antibiotic choices. The infections were treated successfully, and I remained seated free. Numerous AFib incidents continued requiring cardio conversions, and another ablation which brought no relief. Again, advocating on my own behalf, in February of last year, I underwent a third ablation at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio with favorable results. The first concern I discussed with my cardiologist about his treatment was antibiotic use. With proactive involvement in my medical care, I have not gotten another C. diff infection. But my journey is not over. In fact, my journey has me here with you this afternoon. I am now a volunteer for the C. diff foundation. I am dedicated to raising awareness of this debilitating and isolating infection. From my experience, I have seen the importance of advocating and building educational networking around C. diff infections and the considerable burdens associated with them. The importance of helping patients and at-risk individuals and their families to empower themselves to make informed decisions about the prevention and treatment of this infection and their medical health is so very important. Unfortunately, there are many others who suffer with C. diff and carry its scars. I have been anxiously awaiting the FDA to approve medications to treat and prevent a reoccurrence of the debilitating and sometimes fatal infection. And I am here today to celebrate your achievements and all of your hard work. Today we are closer to the day that I can put my anxiety and my fear behind me. I am able to tell you my story here today because if it were not for the CEDA Foundation and learning about clinical trials, instead of taking those magic gut bugs, that conquered my battle with C. diff. My story would have ended, waiting for the phone call I never received. I am grateful for the C. diff Foundation and for all the progress being made with all of the tireless efforts of all of you. It's not easy reliving my experience. It can be painful sharing my journey with others. But no one should ever have to go through what I did to find the answer to defeating a C. diff infection. So, I share my story. I share my story with you today. Because I have faith and I believe in you. You will make the difference. You will find the way to end C. diff and its reoccurring agony. And you all know that C. diff isn't just diarrhea. Thank you all so very much.
Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.